You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Bill Bryson. This program originally aired in 2013. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Word of Mouth. Today, NHBR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth present writers on a New England stage with Bill Bryson. The best-selling author of books on travel and language and science joins us to talk about One Summer, America 1927. The book brings to life the extraordinary season, beginning in May with Charles Lindbergh's pioneering transatlantic flight, here remembered by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Something bright and alien flashed across the sky. A young Minnesotan who seemed to have had nothing to do with his generation did a heroic thing and, for a moment, people set down their glasses in country clubs and speakeasies and thought of their old best dream. Bryson writes of an America coming of age when hemlines climbed, bootleg liquor flowed, and newspapers whipped up scandals for an eager public. In 1927, the anarchists Sacco and Vanzetti were executed. Al Capone cut a bloody path through Chicago. And on the last day of September, Babe Ruth hit a record-setting 60th home run. Bryson writes of a decadent era before fortunes tumbled and deprivation set in. Here's Bill Bryson sharing some of the exuberant spirit of 1927 with the audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Thank you very, very much. I can't tell you how pleased I am to be back. It feels like coming home. We lived for eight very, very happy years in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, my wife and four children and I, um, from 1995 to 2003. And they were really some of the happiest years of our lives. And I was even here long enough that I got kind of comfortable with driving around with a license plate that said, live free or die. I, did. <laughs> I, was, I was a little uncertain about it for a long time, because that just seemed kind of extreme to me, you know. I mean, I'm from Iowa. We're, we're fairly mild people in the Midwest. And I, so I sort of thought something a little more equivocal, like maybe live free or Bitch bitterly, or something like that. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm not going to take up too much of your time with this portion of the program, but um, I just wanted to say how, how absolutely delighted I am to be here. And not just to be back in New Hampshire and be back in New England, but to be here at this time of year because it's the World Series. And I can't wait. It's, and I just wanted to, be, to begin the evening with a, a, a story, a true story. Um, my dad was a sports writer for the Des Moines Register, uh, and every year he, even though it was a minor league city, the paper sent him to the World Series. It was the biggest event in the year for him. He loved baseball, and my own love of baseball, which I trust we'll be talking about in a bit when we talk about the 1927 book, but comes from him. And he, he actually grew up as uh, Babe Ruth was one of his childhood heroes. A couple of weeks before it was time to go, he would start packing his bag, and he would pick out all his loud, flashy ties and best, liveliest sport coats and all of that, and get ready. And you could see that there was a sort of spring in his step. And then he'd go off to the World Series every year, which in the 50s was you know, a fairly epic trip. And he'd come home, and he'd be telling us not only about all of the great ball players he'd seen, the kind of, I don't know, Willie Mays and Duke Snyder and Al Kaline and people like that, but also he would be talking about all these exotic cities he went to that seemed to us, to me anyway, living in Des Moines, Iowa, just wonderfully rich and distant and vibrant and exciting, places like Los Angeles and New York and so on. So I grew up 
with this idea that going to the World Series was the finest possible distraction that any human being could ever undergo. And, and it was the one thing that I've spent my whole life wanting to do. I absolutely ache to go to the World Series. I've had lots and lots of other fantastic opportunities, but I'd never been able to go to a World Series. And I'd have been happy to go to any of them. And then it so happens that exactly 10 years ago, just as the season was coming to a close in 2003, a very good friend of mine, who's the sports editor at the London Times, called me up at home. And he said, Bill, have you been watching what's been going on in the majors this year? Because this guy's name is Keith Blackmore, and although he's English, he knows more about baseball than anybody I've ever met. He really does. He absolutely knows and understands baseball through and through. And as this season of 2003 was coming to a close, he said to me, have you been following what's going on? And I said, have I ever? Because what was happening in, in 2003 as the season was coming to a close was that the two teams that had the most momentum going into the World Series period, the playoff period, were the Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox. Now, you, we all know that the Red Sox have had quite a lot of success in the years since then. But in 2003, they still had the curse of the Bambino. They hadn't won a World Series since 1918 at that point. And the Cubs, bless them, hadn't won a World Series since 1908, and indeed still haven't. Uh, <laughs> and so between them, these two teams were, you know, had 180 years of collective failure. And... and and, and if they had got together in the World Series, I hardly need to tell you, but if they had got together in the World Series, it would have been the most momentous series in modern times because one or the other of them would have had to end this spectacular drought that they'd been suffering under for, for the, you know, 80 years or more. So it was really would have been quite an exciting series. And Keith said to me on the phone, he called me up, he said, look, Bill, we've been talking about this here at the office, and we were wondering if it is the Cubs and the Red Sox in the World Series, whether you would cover it for us because we think it would take an American to explain the kind of momentous improbability of these two teams meeting in the World Series. He said, would you go? And I said, would I go? Keith, I'll go for free. I'll go, I, honestly, I'll go for free. Just get me tickets to the games and a hotel in each city, and I'll take myself over there. You don't have to pay me or anything. I will go absolutely for free. I said, in, in, in fact, I'm not going to let you back out of this. This is how important it is to me. I'm going to go and get my desk diary right now. I'm going to bring it to the phone. I'm going to write this down in ink with you, you, you know, confirming it over the phone. And so you cannot possibly renege on this because you would break my heart. So you understand that. And he said, no, absolutely, that's great. So I went off and got the desk diary. And I came back to it through the phone and opened it to the appropriate page. And I made a crestfallen noise. And I said, Keith, I can't believe it. I can't go to the World Series this year. Because it so happens that my daughter is getting married that week. <laughs> and Keith was quiet for a long moment, and he said, Look, Bill, your daughter, your daughter may get married again. <laughs> now, the reason I bring this all up is because I can't tell this story in England. No one gets it. And... Uh, <laughs> And I have to tell you, the next year, 2004, was the year that the Red Sox broke the drought. And Keith, God bless him, he sent me to the World Series. And so I was there for it. It was my first World Series, and it was what a World Series to say. So. I, was, I was in St. Louis when the, the moment they won it. It was just fantastic. Now, um, uh, I thought I would just, just as a kind of taster for you, just read you a very short passage from the book. The thing that amazed me in the book was that, that I didn't realize that Charles Lindbergh, 
I thought he'd kind of come from out of nowhere. I'd always just assumed that when he flew the ocean, he just got in his, in his head to do it and did it and became famous as a result. What I didn't realize was that there was a real, a huge race going on at the time. That there were lots and lots and lots of other teams, uh, eight or ten of them all together, that were almost all, indeed were all, in better equipped planes. They were bigger planes. Most of them had multiple engines and multiple man crews. And then from out of nowhere, this kid from Minnesota looks 18 years old. He's 25 years old, but looks 18. He's only been flying for about four years. Flies in and announces that he's going to try to be the first person to fly from New York to Paris. And he had a a single-engine plane, a very rickety-looking plane. He wasn't going to take a a navigator or a co-pilot or even a radio. Everybody thought he was out of his mind, that it was complete suicide. And yet for various reasons, he was able to be the first one to take off. And this absolutely entranced the world, the idea of this kid taking off and everybody waves him off. And then, of course, in those days, because of communications, once he got out over the ocean, he just vanished. Nobody knew whether he was going to come out the other side. So the tension was for, for, you know, 16 or 18 hours that he was completely out of contact was just overwhelming. The whole world was on the edge of its seat. And, and then he appeared at Ireland, and everybody knew he was going to make it. But what Lindbergh didn't know as he was flying into Paris was that all of this had happened while he was in the plane. So he had no idea what a hero he had become to the world and how eagerly the world was awaiting his safe arrival in Paris that night. As Lindbergh covered the last leg from Cherbourg into Paris, he had no idea that he was about to experience fame on a scale and of an intensity unlike any experienced by any human being before. It never occurred to him that many people would be waiting for him. He wondered if anyone at the airfield would speak English, and even if he would be in trouble for not having a French visa. His plan was that at first he would see to it that his plane was stowed securely, then he would cable his mother to give her the news that he had arrived. He supposed there would be one or two press interviews, assuming French reporters worked that late. Then he would have to find a hotel somewhere. At some point, he would also need to buy clothes and personal items because he hadn't packed anything at all, not even a toothbrush. A more immediate problem confronting him was that his map didn't show Le Bourget. All he knew was that it was some seven miles northeast of the city and that it was big. After circling the Eiffel Tower, he headed in that direction, but the only possible sight he could see was ringed with bright lights, as if it were some kind of massive industrial complex, with long tentacles of additional bright lights stretching out from it in all directions. This was nothing like the dozing airfield he had expected to find. What he didn't realize was that the activity below was all for him. The sinuous tentacles of light were the headlights of tens of thousands of cars all spontaneously drawn to Le Bourget and now caught in the greatest traffic jam in Parisian history. Cars and trams were abandoned all along the roads to the airport. At 10.22 p.m. Paris time, precisely 33 hours, 30 minutes, and 29.8 seconds after taking to the air, the spirit of St. Louis touched down on the grassy spaciousness of Le Bourget. In that instant, a pulse of joy swept around the earth. Within minutes, the whole of America knew he was safe in Paris. Le Bourget was instantly a scene of exultant pandemonium as tens of thousands of people rushed across the airfield to Lindbergh's plane. An eight-foot-high chain-link fence that surrounded the field was flattened, and several bicycles were crushed under the mass of charging feet. A measure of the pandemonium is that the next day cleaners would gather up more than a ton of lost property, including six sets of dentures. (laughs) 
For Lindbergh, this was an entirely alarming circumstance, as he was trapped and in actual danger of being pulled to pieces. The throngs hauled him from his cockpit and began to carry him off like prized booty. I found myself lying in a prostrate position up on top of the crowd, in the center of an ocean of heads that extended as far out into the darkness as I could see, he later reported. It was like drowning in a human sea. Someone yanked his leather flight helmet from his head, and others worryingly began to pull at his clothing. Behind him, to his greater alarm, his beloved plane was being ruined by the swarms climbing over it. I heard the crack of wood behind me when someone leaned too heavily against a fairing strip, he wrote later. Then a second strip snapped, and a third, and there was the sound of tearing fabric. Somehow, in the confusion, he found himself on his feet and the crowd moving past him. Miraculously, in the poor light, their focus switched to a hapless American bystander who bore a passing resemblance to Lindbergh. (laughs) And they now carried him off, (coughs) wriggling and protesting vehemently. A few minutes later, officials in the airport commandant's office were startled by the sound of breaking glass and the sight of the unfortunate victim being passed through the window to them. Wild-eyed and bedraggled, the new arrival was missing his coat, his belt, his necktie, one shoe, and about half his shirt. A good deal of the rest of his clothing hung from him in shreds. He looked rather like the survivor of a mining disaster. He told the bemused officials that his name was Harry Wheeler and that he was a furrier from the Bronx. He had come to Paris to buy rabbit pelts and had been drawn to Le Bourget by the same impulse that had attracted much of the rest of the Paris. Now he just wanted to go home. <laughs> well, I'll leave you with that. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. From coast to coast we all can boast and sing a toast to one made a name for being game. He was born with wings as great as any bird that flies. A lucky star guides him afar. Lucky Lindy up in the sky. Fair or windy Writer Bill Bryson there, reading about the reception for Charles Lindbergh in Paris, one of the defining events from his book, One Summer. When we return, I'll talk with Bryson about the events of that season in 1927, which he details with characteristic humor and special attention to the delightful but forgotten characters who helped shape American history. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage. We'll be right back with Bill Bryson on this special edition of Word of Mouth from NHPR. Just like a child, he simply smiled while we were wild with fear. This Yankee lad, the world went mad. Everywhere they prayed for him to safely cross the sea. And he arrived in gay Paris. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Bill Bryson. The humorist and historian joins us to talk about One Summer, America 1927, his most recent book. In true Bryson style, the nonfiction account crackles with exhilarating anecdotes and facts from a vanished era. In those four short months, America bounded ahead of the world in aviation, banking, manufacturing, and in the new medium of radio. 
Bryson paints a picture of a country too hungry for distraction and tipsy with optimism and bathtub gin to notice itself marching toward the brink. I sat down with Bill Bryson at the Music Hall in Portsmouth and asked him to describe American wealth and society in that historic summer of 1927. America was in a strange um, situation in the summer of 1927 because it was unquestionably the wealthiest and most powerful nation in the world. It, it, it had been for quite a long time, but it had really, really, really benefited from the First World War. We did really a smart thing in the First World War, which was we lent all of the combatant nations money to fight the war with, and, and then they used that money that we lent them. It all came back to America to buy munitions and armaments and food and all kinds of other things. So we doubly benefited from the war, and that really pushed America right up into the stratosphere economically. But the thing we didn't have in America in in the 1920s was a lot of confidence, which is a strange thing. It's hard to imagine a time when we weren't sort of used to being the supreme nation, but that was absolutely the case. And if you think back to that period, the, uh, the first two or three decades of the 20th century, and you just think of like scientific achievements or artistic achievements, you know, the names that spring to mind are Picasso or James Joyce, but it's almost always Europeans. And in science, you know, it was Einstein and Heisenberg and and people like that. We weren't really in the front rank when it came to kind of the intellectual activities. I mean, for instance, in 1927, um, the United States had still never won a Nobel Prize. So that was the sort of social setting for the book, is that although we were unquestionably the top nation and had and kind of dominated the world in lots and lots of things. We were still a little bit like adolescents and still took our lead from Europe. And all of that was just about to change in a huge way. And if you kind of think about America not being very confident in, in the 1920s internationally, then just think about what happened a decade or so later when the Second World War came along because you know, that was our war. I mean, when, once America entered, it took charge. It was Eisenhower who led the, you know, the charge into Europe. And so there was a huge transition that was just about to break. And that was, that's really kind of part of the reason why I chose 1927 as a way to set the scene for that. Well, uh, like an adolescent, you write, it was an age that didn't like practical concerns to get in the way of its musings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything was possible. It was a media carnival. The public had an appetite for the next scandal and the next achievement. Tell us a little bit about what was being fed to the public at that time. Well, the thing that was new, not, not new in the summer of 1927, but new in the 20s, was the tabloid newspaper, and not just as a format, but, but also as a kind of philosophy of how you present news. And tabloids, then as now, they focused on the kind of salacious stuff, on gossip and scandal and crime, and on celebrities. In the 20s, those really took over, so much so that, that even the solemn, stately newspapers like the New York Times, if you read them, they, they, by the 1927, they had become conspicuously lively and even kind of purply in their prose, and they covered, they covered the liveliest murder trials and so on as avidly as, as any of the tabloids did. So it was an age in which newspapers completely dominated, but um, I mean, really completely dominated, because obviously there's no television, but the radio had, was only just taking off. As, as the summer of 1927 started, network radio was something that only existed for very special events. Lindbergh's homecoming was one of the first of them, but it didn't really exist day to day. Almost all the information you had came from newspapers, and most people... I think then, as now, didn't want a lot of serious news. They wanted, they wanted to know the kind of juicy stuff. 
And what was interesting in terms of the celebrity was that it affected, very much affected, Charles Lindbergh and Babe Ruth. And you could make a very good case that they were the two first non-Hollywood people to become real celebrities. There had been baseball players had been celebrated before, but they'd been celebrated entirely for what they did on the field. Babe Ruth was the first guy that was celebrated as a human being. People celebrated him for hitting his home runs and doing all his great exploits on the ball field, but they also wanted to know what he was eating, where he, you know, who he was going out with, what he was doing, you know, where he was hanging out, which you know, clubs he went to, all that kind of thing. They wanted to know as much as, as they could about his private life, and that was a brand new phenomenon then. Tell us a little bit about his background. It's fascinating. A young man who at 19, when he was going to spring training, had his first ever ride on the train, first time out of Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. Well, he grew up... I mean, this is such a sad story. I I really, really got to love Babe Ruth as a human being because... Um, you know, he was, he was clearly a well-meaning guy. He grew up in as about as tough circumstances you could get. You know, he grew up in an orphanage in Baltimore, not because his parents were dead, but because they just didn't want him at home. You know, they couldn't really manage him. And so they, you know, they just parked him in, in an orphanage. So he was led this kind of, I mean, if I were in that position, I'd be quite embittered about it by being dumped by my parents. And Babe Ruth was never like that. He never showed any kind of bitterness, really, in his life at all. And instead, he grows up to be this just kind of rambunctious, good-natured guy who's always ready for a party, always ready for a drink, but also just the most sensationally gifted ball player ever. And not just as a hitter. I mean, we all remember him for hitting home runs, but a lot of people are unaware that he, he could have been in the Hall of Fame just on his pitching. He pitched for the first several years of his career. So there wasn't anything on a baseball field he couldn't do better than everybody else. And a great hero of 1927, like Charles Lindbergh, but so very different from Lindbergh. I mean, this was a man driven by his appetites, very humble beginnings, absolutely enjoyed being famous. And Charles Lindbergh, on the other hand, was very awkward and shy and handsome. What did the two yeah. tell us about what America was at that time? Well, and, I mean, Lindbergh was the other character that I dwelt on in the book. I, I, I never really warmed to him because he's, he becomes, particularly in later life, he became a much less attractive character. He became very pro-German during the war, for instance, or just before, I'm sorry, just before the war. He was a much more enigmatic person and didn't respond very well to all the fame that was thrust on him. But you do have to sympathize with him. Imagine yourself, if you were 25 years old, you've just flown across the ocean, um, so you expect to be kind of famous. But he was so famous. that I mean, he was the most famous person there had ever been. Every single person on the planet wanted to you know, slap him on the back or give him a hug or shake his hand or have a conversation with him. Every single person. If he went in a building, crowds would form outside it. There was absolutely no privacy, no peace, no getting away from it. And this is a 25-year-old kid. And not only did he have all this attention, but, but also he was treated weirdly as a kind of savior. I mean, they were talking, seriously talking about giving him a permanent position in the cabinet as Minister for Life of Aviation, you know, <laughs> Secretary, Secretary of State for Aviation for Life, with the view to grooming him to become president when he was old enough just to assume the office. You know, and this is a 25-year-old kid who has no other distinction from, other than the fact that he's just flown an airplane across an ocean. And the expectations that were put on him, nobody could live up to. Um, he certainly couldn't. But more crucially, he didn't want to. And, and so almost from the first moment, he began kind of fleeing from all this fame, whereas Babe Ruth couldn't 
get enough attention. <laughs> he loved every bit of it. Because this is a Bill Bryson book, there are just so many fascinating facts in it. It gives a picture of the extent of Lindbergh's fame that after the Armistice Parade of 1918, they cleared 155 tons of debris from the streets of Manhattan. After Lindbergh's parade in 1927... 1,800 tons? 1,800, so more than 10 times as much than, you know, than there was after the First World War. What were we looking for? A big hero? Uh, what was going on? Well, there was what I touched on a little earlier. There was, I, I mean, nobody can really explain it. The best I can do is tell you what I think. There was, first of all, the, just the kind of surprise and astonishment, joyous surprise and astonishment that this kid did it. Everybody expected um, this commander, Richard Byrd, to be the first to cross in a plane with four people, pilot, co-pilot, navigator, and uh, radio operator. And everybody thought that he was going to be the first to cross, and Lindbergh got away first and did it. And just as a, an indicator of how brilliant Lindbergh was as a flyer, when Bird's team did finally get away about a month later, even though they had a radio operator and navigator and four people, they were supposed to make their landfall at Ireland. They missed Ireland by over 200 miles. They couldn't find Paris at all. And eventually, they had to ditch into the English Channel off the coast of Normandy. Compared with that, Lindbergh hit every one of his landmarks along the way, navigating all by himself, doing measurements with the stars and so on on his lap, and guessing, kind of estimating how much wind drift he had to put up with. Probably his flight was the single best piece of flying Ever. Nobody's ever done anything to match that. So he was, he was a flying genius, but, but it just didn't translate to all these other things that people expected of him. You mentioned Clarence Bird. There are so many other characters who are also going for this Ortigue Prize, this uh, aviation prize, a $25,000 reward offered for the first person who could cross the Atlantic. There are so many players. I don't know if you just want to pick one, Francesco de Pinedo. Uh, oh, gosh, I, there's so many. Just so well, many I tell you, if you ask me ones. to just pick one, in many ways, the one that, that surprised and, and just delighted me the most was this wonderful guy, Gutzen Borglum, who I'd never heard. I mean, I, I, I wasn't acquainted with that name at all, but he's the guy behind Mount Rushmore. And, and he was a, a sculptor of some repute, and he got it into his head that he was going to go to South Dakota and carve a mountainside and put four presidents' heads on it. And the four were chosen because Lincoln, Jefferson, and and Washington because they were great founding father kind of figures, I mean, the greatest presidents. And then Theodore Roosevelt simply because Goodson Borglum and Theodore Roosevelt were friends. And (laughs) Borglum liked him a lot. And everybody said, no, I don't think Theodore Roosevelt fits into this quartet, you know. Uh, and Borglum said, no, no, he's just... Anyway, Borglum was, was, like, n- nearly crazy. I mean, really close to crazy. And, but just a driven person. Probably it required somebody like that. Uh, absolutely driven and impossible to work with, but grandiose vision. And he gets this idea that he's going to carve four presidential heads into a mountain in South Dakota, which was just, everybody thought, he's completely out of his mind, because not only had nobody ever tried anything on that scale before, nobody believed it was possible, but South Dakota, nobody went to South Dakota. It was hundreds of miles, (laughs) hundreds of miles from anywhere. And even if people had gone to South Dakota, which they didn't, but even if they had, they couldn't get within 50 miles of of Mount Rushmore because there were no roads to it. So here is this mad sculptor, blasting away at a mountain that's absolutely in the middle of nowhere that nobody's ever going to be able to see anyway. Uh, and yet he did it. And of course now, you know, Mount Rushmore is one of the most treasured and iconic 
um, creations in the whole 20th century, anywhere on earth, really. I mean, I went there expecting to be kind of cynical about it or prepared to be disappointed. And in fact, it was exactly the opposite case. It was, it's, it's very, very impressive. I loved it. You seem so delighted. There's so much mirth. I mean, are you just smirking your way through the world all the time? <laughs> it's just so fun. Well, I'm just very kind of you to say that. I, I had a great time doing it. I was really enjoying myself the whole time I was doing it, and I hope some measure of enthusiasm is evident on the page. It was, uh, it was an era of people, that, the characters really were, I think, larger than life. I mean, you know, there will never be another Babe Ruth, either on the ball field or off. And I don't know why it was, but that age really was very productive. Um, and, and really, from the mid-20s on, America suddenly took off. I mean, in, in almost every field, if you think of Hollywood, if you think of literature, I mean, just think of the writers that were suddenly active. And these were people that were coming from out of nowhere, like, like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Sinclair Lewis and, and lots and lots. They could go on and on. Eugene O'Neill. It was suddenly, there was just this sudden outburst of kind of wonderful figures, but not just, you know, not like just the best writers of the decade or the best artists of the decade, but, you know, of all time. While at the same time, you had all of this sort of euphoria because of the economy booming away. And ironically, prohibition actually sort of seemed to have the undesired effect of enlivening the age. Almost by every measure, people did more drinking in the 20s under prohibition than they had done... Beforehand. But, but also, I mean, tragically, a lot of people died. There was a lot of poison going around. That's one of the things I learned in your book. Yeah, well, it was one of the things I learned in doing the book. Is, and I, I think it was the single most amazing fact I learned in doing the book was that the U.S. government was intentionally poisoning industrial alcohol as a way of trying to keep it from being diverted to be made into bootleg drink. Uh, knowing that by poisoning it in that way, they would be killing random people. And, you know, I just think that's the most amazing thing, that, that our own government was killing people randomly, but intentionally, um, so as a way of kind of discouraging everybody else from drinking illegal booze. And that was largely because the um, Anti-Saloon League, which was the, the kind of driving force behind Prohibition, was so powerful that the leader of the Anti-Saloon League, Wayne Wheeler, really, really believed that anybody who drank deserved whatever they got. You just said our government, which struck me because uh, we have a question here. I find much of your writing a combination of American humor and British arrogance. (laughs) (laughs) Do you consider yourself primarily American or British? I'm too arrogant to answer a question. (laughs) That's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, then can you call forth your American bravado? Yeah, yeah, no, um, I... That is actually quite a, a tricky one for me because, you know, I'm in a slightly odd position. I'm, I'm very comfortable to be in this odd position, but I'm in a slightly odd position and I grew up in this country. So I have, you know, I really, you know, I understand it at a very fundamental, elemental level the way anybody does who grows up in a place, so, which is why, you know, I'm so attached to baseball. But also, you know, I under, if you're talking about anything to do with America, like just the education system or the political system or anything like that, I understand it because I spent the first 20-some years of my life in this country. And so, you know, I grew up with it. I understand it kind of, it feels almost innate within me. But then I went off and lived in England, and I've now lived essentially two-thirds of my life in another country. So although I don't have the same sort of intimate relationship with England, I do have more history with England. And that leaves me in a a kind of odd place. And what it means is that, that from day to day, I'm very happy living 
in England. I, I like it there. But because I am American, I do miss America. I miss a lot of things about it. I come back here as often as I can, and every time I come back, I'm really looking forward to being back. And, and a big part of the reason why I write so many books that are based on America is partly the comfort factor. That I'm comfortable writing about a nation that I understand at such a sort of elemental level, but also as a way of getting back. By doing a book on America in the 1920s, and this book is really exclusively about America in 1927, is just a, a way of physically and kind of mentally reconnecting. You've lived and you've traveled and you've written about so many different places, Africa, Australia, the United Kingdom, New Hampshire, the Appalachian Trail, Des Moines. What is it like for you to stay in some place? Are you, are you a restless person when you're not traveling? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do really like to travel. And it, it kind of amazes me because, uh, you know, I'm not a good traveler. I mean, I'm really not. And, and part of my travel books were, were based on the fact that I am both incompetent and uncomfortable almost every time I leave home. Uh, but I do like to go places, I, and I think a lot of it is to do with growing up in Iowa, uh, particularly in the 50s. It just seemed like all the rest of the world was somewhere else. It was beyond the Mississippi. And if you come from the Midwest or the West, you know, you might understand what I'm saying. It just, it's a long way from, from anywhere where all, all the exciting stuff was happening. I really wanted to experience all that, and I've never really quite lost that wanderlust. And it does surprise me often now when I find myself traveling, because I've been doing it so much for so long, I still want to know what's around the next corner. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, there are a couple of questions from the audience about immigration policies, ah. probably because uh, you moved abroad fairly easily in the 1970s. So how do you feel about increasingly strict immigration restrictions, both in the UK and the US? First of all, I, I obviously recognize and accept that no country can just throw open its gates and, and allow anybody to come in without any kind of restrictions ever. It's a shame that young, bright people from prosperous nations get kind of punished by that, if there's an anti-immigrant feeling. I mean, people talk about immigration, they're not thinking about, you know, well-off Americans or well-off Britons or well-off French people. They're thinking about people from the third world and as if they're coming in and going to kind of take over. You know, my life was completely transformed by accidentally going to England and, and meeting this girl and, you know, having a chance to stay there for a little while. The thought that if I were trying to do now what I did then, I would probably not be able to do it. And that just seems a shame. There ought to be free movement until you're 25 or something, just so that young people could... Italians could come here and, and Australians could go to Ireland and, you know, we could all move around a bit. I just think it would make the world a lot more interesting and probably tolerant place. Writer Bill Bryson there in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. When we return, more on Bryson's new book, One Summer, a whirling trek through the summer of 1927, a season of American heroism, progress, and lost innocence. Bryson will answer questions about his travel books, his favorite companions, and reckon with the residents of a New Hampshire town he once described as instantly forgettable. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage. We'll be right back with Bill Bryson on this special edition of Word of Mouth on NHPR. Say 
I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present writers on a New England stage with Bill Bryson, the hugely popular author of A Walk in the Woods, A Short History of Nearly Everything, and other books on travel, language, and history. His most recent is called One Summer, America 1927. In it, Bryson turns his uncanny eye and gifts as a storyteller to four months, which defined America's place in the world. Among the historical events of that summer was the execution of Italian-born anarchists Bartolomeo Vanzetti and Nicola Sacco. Though their names are remembered in some histories, the details of their convictions and deaths may not be. Bryson shared some of the pair's story in front of the live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Experimentally, I've asked people, does Sacco and Vanzetti, does that mean anything to you? And more often than not now, I find that people of all ages don't remember them at all. I think people in New England remember them slightly better because they were based in New England and it was a New England case. But generally speaking, I think they're pretty well forgotten. Probably not without reason, but it was a huge cause celeb at the time. And what it was was that these two Italian immigrants who were self-declared anarchists, they believed in the the throwing down of the American government and that embittered a lot of people because there was a feeling, quite understandable, among a lot of people at the time that, you know, we've allowed you poor immigrants to come in and we've given you all these economic opportunities and the way you repay us is by trying to undermine our government. And and a lot of anarchists were doing things like throwing bombs and trying to assassinate people and things like that. So there was a, you know, there was a lot of feeling, particularly against Italians who, who tended to be the members of the anarchists. And so there was a a payroll robbery in South Braintree, Massachusetts, in which two men were really quite brutally killed, just shot dead at point-blank range as part of this robbery. And Sacco and Vanzetti were picked up on very, very specious evidence. The likelihood is that they had nothing to do with that robbery, uh, but convicted of it anyway and set for execution, which was in the summer of 1927. So that became an issue that really, really polarized not just the nation but the world. Some people really believed they were guilty and really, really wanted them punished. And some people just wanted them punished as a kind of example to the others. They were, they were anarchists after all. And even if they didn't do this, they deserved to, to die anyway. And then a lot of people were saying, but they're innocent, you know. This is a, you know, it's against the American way. We don't execute innocent people. Everybody can see they're innocent. This is, a, you know, a, a miscarriage of justice. It's a travesty. So it was really divisive, and it tended to be sort of liberal intellectuals that were marching around, uh, not wanting them to be executed, and, and more conservative people who really wanted to. And a lot of other immigrant communities were, were really wanted them executed, interestingly enough. The Irish in Boston, for instance, were said to be overwhelmingly in favor of execution. The governor of Massachusetts at the time, a guy named Alvin Fuller, really didn't want to execute them. He particularly liked Vanzetti, uh, who, who was apparently quite a charismatic guy, and he looked for every possible reason he could find to spare them, but you know, they had been tried and convicted. Everything was, was legal and straightforward, so he had no choice but to allow the execution to go forward. So they were executed, and, uh, and the whole world kind of erupted. There were riots all over the earth, and for several days it was, it was very unsafe to be an American walking around on the streets of almost any foreign city, almost anywhere in the world, which was ironic because only just 
like six weeks earlier, if you were an American walking around the streets of Omicisi, would you be embraced because you were equated with Lindbergh, the greatest hero of the time? So you, the, the situation went from you know, loving Americans to, to almost overnight hating them just because of Sacco and Vanzetti. That's just one of these confluences and coincidences that you write about. There are so many of them. I had to write them down. Andrew Kehoe blows up a school in Bath, Michigan, just a stone's throw from Al Capone's lakeside retreat. You know, among the throng greeting Charles Lindbergh is Isadora Duncan. Lindbergh flies over a competitor battling the swells in his seaplane. I'm just sort of imagining, like, how did you plot all this stuff? This is a whole year. How do you begin to organize this? Well, I thought it was going to be really easy. I really thought, you know, this would be... Part of the reason I chose this, I thought, just a summer, you know, how... And it's so, and it, it has a chronology to it. You start in May, you finish in September, and it's all very straightforward. And I really did think at the outset that I was mostly going to be writing about just two characters, Lindbergh and Ruth. And then all this other stuff kept popping up, and I kept finding these other things. And it, it felt at times like I was, you know, juggling 30 balls. I would introduce a new story and start telling it, so I'd kind of throw that ball up in the air, but all the others, the Lindberghs and the Ruths, were starting to fall down again, so I'd have to run over and catch those and throw them up. And then, and then I got to the point where it's the end. The summer is over. Um, Babe Ruth hit his 60th home run on September the 30th, essentially the last day of, of summer, and that kind of ended. You know, I could let all the balls fall to the floor with that. But then, of course, I realized that actually, you know, all of these people, their lives went on. As far as they were concerned, in the summer of 1927, there wasn't anything... St- particularly significant about it at all. It was just a summer, and it was going to be followed by the fall of 1927 and the winter and so on. And, and they didn't see it as a particularly momentous period at all, that it was just part of their, you know, a, a moment in their lives. And all of them, their lives went on, and I had to somehow, in an epilogue, try to explain really quite swiftly what happened to all these people afterwards. So it, was, it turned out to be both a heftier book than I ever expected it would be, and to be... Um, you know, rather more of a complex story to tell than I ever expected it to be. I'm just seeing these cards here. I just have to, it just reminds me, well, I, I once did a, a lecture like this in, in which people wrote questions on cards, but they were handed straight to me to read. I mean, I didn't know what I was getting, and I was reading them at the lectern, and my wife was in the audience, and one of the cards near the top was in her handwriting, and it said, <laughs> and it just said, is your wife a saint? <laughs> funny we have that question um actually you know what we do have are dozens of questions about charlie Katz and whether or not you ever summited katahdin no we never summited katahdin but we but Katz is still there i'll be seeing him in another week or so he's just the most wonderful person if you don't know the book Katz was the guy that went hiking with me on the appalachian trail and we were we spectacularly failed to hike the trail from N10, <laughs> but uh, we really gave it our best shot, and it was, we really, really, really tried to do it. The thing about Katz was that he stood by me. He never, he never quit. He never gave up, and, and he could easily have. I mean, a lot of what we were doing, particularly in the early weeks, because we hit a lot of very bad weather, we were getting soaked to the skin day after day, and there's nothing more wretched than, than crawling into a sleeping bag when you're still kind of wet. And then we got caught in a terrible blizzard, and we were sort of pinned down in the Smokies with that. And it was just, it was just one kind of wretched experience after another. And if Katz had said to me at any point, look, I've had it. I, I can't do it anymore. I'm really sorry, but I'm, you know, I'm out of here. I would not have blamed him at all. But he didn't do that. He stood by me, and he went every step of the way with me as far as we both did it together. And so my debt to him was enormous. 
And yet when I came to write the book, I presented him in the book as this sort of great, lumbering, ill-tempered buffoon. Because that's what he is. And, and it is an assumed name, correct? It is an assumed name. But anyway, he, and I was very, very worried when, when I wrote the book. I thought, you know, I really have you know, not been very gracious about this. So I, I sent him, the, but I needed it both for the comic effect, but also just to tell the story accurately. And so I sent him the, the manuscript and really was worried about it. And I waited a week or ten days, and I didn't, didn't hear anything from him. So finally I called him up at home. He lives in, in Des Moines. He's back in Des Moines. And I called him up at home, and, and uh, he came to the phone on a Sunday morning. I remember it very clearly. I was very friendly, totally affable, but said nothing about the book. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you, did you get the book? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, did you like it? Did you read it? He said, oh, yeah, it's very funny. And I said, well, wait a minute, that seems kind of equivocal. Was there something wrong with it? And he said, well, it's just, you know, it's all fiction, isn't it? And, <laughs> and I said to him, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, you're the only person in the universe that was actually with me every step of the way. So I don't understand why you're saying that. I said, are you suggesting that I was making this stuff up? I said, do you deny, for instance, that on our very first day as we were walking up the mountainside, you threw everything out of your pack because you were such a temper about the weight of everything in your pack. You were flinging things over the edge of the mountain. And he said, no, I did, no, you're right, I did do that. And I said, do you deny that I put your tent up for you the first night because you were too big a baby to do it yourself? And he said, well, I, no, okay, I did do that. And, and so I sort of walked him through the book, you know, like... Until I pretty clearly I had established that all of these things were things that had actually happened and that he had been a participant in them. And, and so I said to him, so how can you say it's fiction? And he said, well, it's just the way you tell it. <laughs> but he's been very, very gracious and good-natured about it. And he has, um, he, he has stayed in touch and... He's, occasionally I've done readings in Des Moines and things like that, and he's come along and people have, have kind of outed him in the audience. And it, there was one occasion when he did more signatures than I did. And uh, he thought that was wonderful. He absolutely loved it. So. Well, a number of people also want to know about your thoughts on Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, which... You wrote... Oh, God. <laughs> ...in The Lost Continent... You refer to Portsmouth as an instantly forgettable little town. Uh, you were talking about Portsmouth, uh, Virginia, okay, correct? Okay, yes. No, I um I that no, I can't deny that. <laughs> I This is I think my third time to Portsmouth and I I've always lived in dread that that one is going to come out. <laughs> that because it was I honestly don't know what happened because I did after we moved to Hanover we came here and I thought no this place is fantastic it's lovely long before I knew I'd have to get up and defend myself in front of the citizenry <laughs> but um, in, in the book when I go back to the Lost Continent there's lots and lots of things that I, I wish I could do over but the one thing I really struggled with New England altogether mm. in that book and I don't know quite why I had it in mind that I was looking for you know this kind of perfect New England town and I think and I, I know I mean I came back and lived in one and we found many many others but on that trip, I was just not having any luck. And I was kind of driving up Highway 1 up through Maine. And you know it's not exactly, a lot of it is not the most scenic and splendid. I mean, it was kind of overwhelming with all the L.L. Bean stuff and everything. And, and um, well, there's that kind of malls development and everything. And so that was, I, I think, off-putting to me. 
There's so many things in that book that I regret, but I think that more than anything else, because we then came back and lived in New England, and I got to know it. All right, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself then, Bill Bryson. Could the 1927 Yankees beat the 2013 Red Sox? <laughs> no, um, I, no, they couldn't. But somebody, I, there's no... No, no, no. They, I mean, they couldn't. But, but I was just thinking about you know this this business of it's impossible to make comparisons between players of one age and players of another. And somebody once in in about 1940, um, I can't remember who it was exactly, but one of the old sports writer asked a, an old player how uh, well Ty Cobb would be doing if if he was playing today. This would be in like about 1945. And the, the retired player said uh, he expected he'd only be hitting about 270. And the guy said, really, the players today that good? And he said, well, no, but Cobb would be about 85 years old now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, Cobb is one of those people who you expose in the book as not being quite what we might think. Yeah, I didn't. There was so many. a mean guy. There's so many baseball players I would love to have written about more. And I, I didn't, partly because he didn't really do anything particularly notable in the summer of 1927 or anything more notable than what he did every year anyway. He comes in there because of his sort of um, well-known rivalry with, with yeah. Babe Ruth. And Cobb absolutely hated Lou Gehrig for no reason at all. He just decided he hated Lou Gehrig. There was, well, he hated sluggers. He hated people that knocked the ball a long way. And he used to sort of sneak up to Gehrig. If Gehrig was on first base, Cobb would come in from outfield and sort of sneak up to him and call him, you know, a thick-headed Dutch knucklehead and things like that, um, and just sort of ride him the whole game. And, uh, but that was as much as I could put in. I mean, he's, he's, Cobb is an amazing human being and, and a remarkable ball player, but I wasn't able to dwell on him very much, uh, and several other players that I would like to have talked about more. But, but so many characters, we get this other side of them. We learn that Herbert Hoover was never seen to laugh in 30 years of, of knowing him from one of his colleagues, but people were so refreshingly unpolished, so unready for the media spotlight. Of course, it was a kind of mediated age, but they hadn't been trained. You know, there's kind of this unguarded humanness and imperfectness about them. I just wondered if that is something that is lost forever. They, they weren't as exposed to, most by and large, they weren't as exposed to the, the kind of media spotlight as now, and things weren't recorded. I mean, you know, there weren't sound recordings until after the summer was over. Um, certainly not newsreel sound and, and things like that. So, so it was a lot harder to kind of trip them up. And I think they benefited from that. But there was also, there was definitely a kind of complicity with the newsmen and, and reporters that uh, they didn't tell a, a lot of the scandal that went on. You know, I mean, people didn't know how just kind of spectacularly promiscuous Clara Bow was, the, the Hollywood starlet, and she was apparently spectacularly <laughs> promiscuous. And... Um, I mean, they knew that she was kind of a firecracker and, and everybody adored her for being sort of spunky and everything, but, but that barely begins to describe what she was really doing off the set. And, um, and, so, and same with Ruth. I mean, nobody had any idea just what you know, he was getting up to off the field. Uh, I mean, everybody knew that he, was, that he had a big appetite and he drank a, a good deal and that he ate lots and lots of hot dogs and things like that. But, but all of his kind of sexual dissipation and everything was, was never mentioned. Uh, and the fact that, you know, he was occasionally fathering children in places he shouldn't be, you know, he, he almost entirely escaped that. Because the reporters were happy to keep it secret, 
And if it seems more innocent today, it's a lot of it just because it was presented at the time as more innocent than it actually was. Bill Bryson, thank you so much. Thank you for very much. Me. Thank you. Nightshades falling, lovers calling. What makes the world go round? Nothing but love. The writer Bill Bryson there in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. We spoke about his most recent book, One Summer, America 1927, chronicling the apex of the jazz age, an era that, as F. Scott Fitzgerald later wrote, reluctant to die outmoded in its bed, leaped to a spectacular death in October 1929. 